You're listening to the PMO Strategies Podcast, where PMO leaders become impact drivers. This is episode 65. Hey there, Impact Drivers. Welcome back to the PMO Strategies Podcast. I am your host, Laura Bernard, and today we are going to be talking all about the portfolio management dream, what the barriers are to portfolio management, and how you can actually expedite portfolio management in your organization. And to have this conversation, there's no one better to have it with than Rick Morris. So let me tell you a little bit about my special guest today. Rick is the owner of R2 Consulting and is an evangelist for project management, which you know, be still my beating heart, I'm so happy to hear that. He is an internationally sought after speaker delivering keynote presentations for conferences and PMI events around the world. Now here's some really cool things about him. At the age of 11, Rick was a Walt Disney World performer, and in high school, he worked on the new Mickey Mouse Club. How cool is that? Taking the experience of his youth and blending it with the knowledge he attained throughout his career, Rick has been able to inspire and mentor many project managers. His blend of experience and delivery style makes his passion for the profession contagious. This episode is sponsored by Keyed In. Place the right bets, turn quickly, and deliver faster with this innovative approach to top-down portfolio and capacity planning. Looking at adopting a more agile method due to the ongoing crisis? Concepts like iterative development, continuous improvement, and prioritizing a dynamic backlog when applied to portfolio management, can deliver a host of compelling benefits that Keydin brings to life. Learn more at pmoimpactsummit.com forward slash keydin. That's pmoimpactsummit.com forward slash keydin. I'm so thrilled to have somebody here with the same passion and energy for supporting this community of impact drivers. So Rick, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So let's Talk about this a little bit. Can you share a little bit more about your experience and this Walt Disney stuff? I'd love to hear a little bit more about that before we dive in. Yeah, interesting. So I was a dancer. I was a a kid of the kingdom, danced on Cinderella's Castle and seasonal shows. It was the uh, Sparkling Christmas Spectacular and uh, Springtime Fantasy Shows. And literally thousands of kids would try out and they would take six boys, six girls, and and we would become kids of the kingdom. It was phenomenal. It was was a dream job. That's so Um, cool. And then I was there for, um, long story short, I was in television production in, in high school and, and got some, some notice by local news. And so was hired by the company that did the new Mickey Mouse Club. So I was an audio video technician for them. So I uh, was there for, for all seven seasons, but we just had our 30 year anniversary and it was nuts. Um, but I got to be the executive producer of the reunion that we did in Orlando. We prayed maybe 300 people would show up. You know, we were thinking about running out of BB Kings. It turned out to be at the Hyatt in Epcot had over 4,000 people. We had no idea the show still had that much of a following and those people would come. We announced VIP tickets uh, for, for, I think it was like 14, 1500 bucks. We didn't even know who was coming, what the events were that we were just, you know, putting it out there and they sold out in two days. It was nuts. But uh, wow. yeah, so that's some of the background but from a business perspective. I've got over 150 implementations now of, of various project management platforms and organizations. And so I see 
this portfolio management dream all the time because everybody buys that software because the first thing they want to advance to is I want to make better decisions in my portfolio. Yeah. And that's really the interesting thing about all of this is that PMO leaders and program portfolio managers really see this whole portfolio management thing as a dream. At the same time, it can really become a nightmare if you don't do things the right way. So what we're going to dive into today is how to keep that portfolio management dream from becoming a nightmare. And I know this is a really hot topic for a lot of PMO leaders, all these impact drivers participating, because it's a pain point for a lot of us, right? A lot of business leaders are looking for transparency. They're looking for the information to help them drive educated and informed decisions. In almost every episode of this podcast and in the webinars and training I do, I'm always telling them that this is a really important function for PMO leaders to consider in serving the organization because we hold the keys to the information and the better we can help our organization drive decisions and supporting the way the projects are delivered, the more valuable and integral the PMO becomes as a part of the very fabric that makes the organization deliver impact. So can you talk to me a little bit about why you call it a dream? And is that because it's not possible to achieve? Oh, no, it's it, it's a dream because when it works, it's fabulous. But the problem is, is it's like me dreaming of having six-pack abs. I know I got to <laughs> eat better and I know I got to run, but the pain of doing that, right, is something I don't want to endure. So I have this dream of just me just being stacked with abs, right? But that's a dream. And so getting there is the hard work. What's unfortunate, especially with a lot of the software platforms, is when they demo, they demo their portfolio management stuff. They, and it's gorgeous. Like you see water lines and you see this is where I run out of money and this is where I run out of resources. And everybody's like, I want that. And it's just the same thing. I want those abs. I want that yeah. portfolio management water line. But it requires changing how you eat. It requires exercising. It requires doing the things that we know that we're supposed to do but we just don't want to. We just, it's just hard to keep up with that information. And it really isn't hard. We just tell ourselves it's hard. And so therefore we don't do it. And that's when it becomes a nightmare is because you make these large investments. If we look at project statistics as a whole, right? Project failure statistics, depending on what you read, right? But they're still awful. Let's, let's just all yeah. agree. And to me, that is a direct result of the portfolio. It's because we're making decisions based on what we can spend. And we have no idea whether or not our resources can realistically achieve it. And so therefore, we don't even know if the projects connect the strategy, right? It starts yeah. with, give me a list of all your projects. Now, how much is that going to cost? These are the ones that we're going to do, right? Yeah. And of course, I'm sure there's more sophistication, but that's, right, that's the net net of it. That's but kind of the bottom how the, line, right? yeah. We're, we're on a short podcast, so that's the net net of it, right? But the, 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 <laughs> but the project- We don't have all day strategy, here. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't know how it's impacting our resources. We don't even know what percentage of our resources are available to do projects. So um, without understanding that information, we're going to continue to go by our gut. Our gut's going to lead to projects that either run on or fail. And then we're going to continue to look at the project management profession as the reason for that. When really my job is to educate the executives, that, that is all downhill from how much time and effort you put into the decision-making you're doing. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, I really like that you related it to something that a lot of us can relate to is how we take care of ourselves, right? Because with the proper care and feeding and exercise and maintenance, you can achieve some pretty amazing outcomes, but you have to be willing to do the work. So what does that work look like? It actually is far simpler 
than we think. In my practice, I call it crawl, walk, run, and we, we actually say foundation, automation, innovation. So the project managers are supposed to focus on writing a good schedule. If you have a good schedule, everything else should become ancillary. It should really be point and click. I, my report should generate. All of my information should flow. So I can focus on a good schedule. Resource mm-hmm. managers, we just need to focus on percentage of time. And it, it doesn't need to be harder than that. Meaning I need to sit down each week and look at really the next eight weeks. You know, anything further is, is crazy. So when we start a project, I just say, I don't know, I think I need 40% of Laura's time for six months. And, right. and, and that's all we need. But then as we break that down into weeks, say, how is her time really being chopped up over the next eight weeks? And if I'm doing it well, then it only should take me five to 10 minutes, no more per week as a resource manager to be able to deal with that data. It should be that simple, that quick. If we get those two pillars, you can have portfolio management. But the problem is this, is they'll buy the software, they see everything it can do, and then you start going down these paths of automation of processes and project management. I want my charter in there and I want this report to look good. Then we start arguing about colors and fonts and a report that nobody's even gonna read versus just turning around and saying, look, give me a list of projects, give me a list of people, match percentage to projects and done. At that Mm -hmm. point, we can do portfolio management. You can then add in cost. Right After that, you can add in all of these gate reviews and all the other stuff that you want to do. We can do that. But the primary focus of the tool should be able to cross-reference. Now, when you do buy tools like you know a CAPPM or a PDWare or a Plan View or something like that, they do the pivots, which is now I can see roles, I can see departments, I can see people, all that kind of stuff. All that's cool. But from a data entry point, I just need to know, here's the six projects Laura's got. What's her percentage of time allocation? at a good enough level that makes sense and off you go. Yeah. But I can 150 implementations. I had maybe five who really, really got that and did it. And one of those is a company I watched that started with 150 IT employees. They ballooned and dominated an industry and within really two to three years and grew like crazy. And it was because they were so focused on those numbers, doing the right projects at the right time. And uh, that company, I'll go ahead and say it was called the Shurion. And so yep. when they started, they had one cell phone contract. It took them seven days to replace a phone. Through proper and strong portfolio management, they now have literally a domination of the market, bought their competitors. They're doing the refurbs of the phones. I mean, and that all happened within like a three-year growth period by doing phenomenal portfolio management. Wow. And so what, just to make sure that I know there's people taking notes right now, what are the first things that you say that they should focus on? So number one, just get a list of projects. Yeah. I, I don't care about the charters and everything else. List of projects, give me yeah. the names. Give mm-hmm. me a people and a role, right? So I try to keep it to no more than 50 roles in a company. I've seen people with you know, 200 employees and 150 roles. And it's like, really? Mm-hmm. I mean, do I care that they're a Java developer, a .NET developer, or is it a developer? At some point, I'm going to care. And I get that. Right. But in the beginning, I just want to know I got 10 developers. You start there. So job person to role, and then a percentage of their time to each project. And then you have to have an overhead category. And I just like admin. Yeah. Admin and yeah. support. So 10% goes to meetings and emails and 20% goes to support activities. Exactly. Or whatever I that is. That. But then you can adjust that because you have some employees that are 80% support and you mm-hmm. have some employees that are 5% support. So you can just put that in and it rolls up nice and easy. 
So I love how simple you've got this. And I think that you're touching on probably one of the many barriers in implementing portfolio management. Before we dive into that, though, it's funny that you say, look, it really can just be that simple because that's what I was telling my clients when I was doing a lot of consulting. That's And when I was inside organizations as a PMO leader for 15 years, we would always start super, super simple. First, just give me a list of projects. And what would happen often is they say, well, we need a tool. And I'm like, you can't just tell me the list. Let's put it on the whiteboard, right? right? We don't need a tool for that. Just, and that's literally how I would start with a lot of my clients is let's just put it on the whiteboard. And that's what I teach my students now because I teach them the same program of how I used to you know, consult with my clients. And I say, just give me a list on the whiteboard. And that proves to be a very important conversation, just getting that list up there because that's where the pet projects come out. That's where the details come out. That's where we find out that now we actually have some transparency as to the projects that are even happening in the organization, which often is one of the first problems, right? And then then I say, now let's just prioritize these one through N. Let's just start there. And oh my gosh. And that's... (laughs) And that's, I think we need to do a, I'll do a whole episode just on that, right? Let me me dovetail on two things that you were just saying. Number one, first, the prioritization, what they end up doing is nobody wants to prioritize, but somebody's going to have to. So that puts the CIO in that position. And the CIO doesn't really care. They just want enough time to get the job done, right? Right. But before the list of projects, I hit them with a question, Lori. So what I asked them is, who do you think is making the strategic decisions of this company? Are you guys the strategic decision makers? And and of course, they're all going to say yes. Then I say, great, give me a list of projects. And when they can't, I go, then who's making the strategic decisions? And that's yeah. my first point to go, look, if you, unless you're doing this activity and giving a prioritized list of projects, if you won't make the decision, somebody down the line will, which means you're not making the strategic decisions. We've got, I love that. We've got to establish this first. Yeah. And I think that's probably another one of the pain points that you were talking about with respect to, we make it so complicated at first. And I was just in a coaching call for my coaching program with one of my students. And I was talking to her about this concept I call Thanksgiving eyes. So here in the US, but this applies to any holiday people have anywhere in the world, there's usually a lot of food involved, right? When we, when people get together, we get lots of food together and we get really big big plates and we throw as much food as we possibly can on that plate. And then we proceed to realize there's no way we can digest all that food, right? There's no way we can digest it all. And I think it's really positive intentions that can prevent us from achieving the basics. And the basics can create so much more momentum and move you so fast towards the goals you're trying to achieve. But we get so hung up on, oh, but I also want it to do this. I also want it to do that. Therefore, we try and do so many things at once that nothing gets done. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at with, well, but I also want my charter in here and I also want all this process. And I also want to know these other 85 metrics, which by the way, you don't need 85 metrics to make a decision about whether a project should happen or not, or know where it is. Right. So I think that's probably a big challenge that a lot of people have that maybe would make portfolio management a nightmare is overcomplicating everything. Well, I think we have to get to the point of a decision. So instead of, and really this is where the agile methodology, I I love it because I, I use how agile works with my executives to go, you know what? Let's not deal with that until it becomes a problem. So for instance, one of the big things I always hear about uh, the systems is, well, I want to be updated if somebody else updates one of my resource utilizations. And I go, really? You do? You sure? I said, because you think somebody's going to wake up at three in the morning and just go jack up your utilizations? Like, that doesn't make sense. What if we wait to see if that actually becomes a problem? And if it becomes a problem here, we can put a policy or procedure or process in place to solve it. 
but let's right. not solve for things that don't happen. Let's just do the, the lightest, easy. So security, like I want to lock this down, lock that down. I was like, yeah, because I've seen environments that are so locked down, people can't use the system. So yeah, they can't get anything done. Right. Yeah. So you're getting, so I, I was like, let's keep it open. Let's keep it honest. You trust your employees with the other information. Why not trust it with this? Right. And it's that theory X and theory Y of system implementation, right? Theory X is my people are stupid. They're going to screw it up. Theory wise says, let's keep it open and collaborate and see what we can grow and innovate with. Right? Yeah. And I'm so on the theory why, right? I, I push on theory why. It's the same thing. When you start talking about complications of portfolio, that's, that's one of my other favorites is the 84 metrics that you're talking about. Now we start arguing about the formula that generated the ranking, All right? So we want some sort of portfolio score. And some people go, well, ROI is five times more important. No, no, no. NPV is important. And all of those statistics at the end of the day are just a guess. I mean, let's just be honest with you. What I end up doing is simplifying portfolios that way and go, look, all right, what are the five things we care about? Then I rank the projects by each single metric. I'm going to rank it by ROI. I'm going to rank it by whatever, NPV, rank it by cost, those types of things. And then draw a waterline and say, whichever projects are satisfied in all five of these lists, we're not even discussing. They're in, we're golden. Now we're just going to discuss the ones that are on different lists. And that mm -hmm. kind of helps us focus and it makes us make the easier decisions first versus trying to come up with a formula and that's behind the scenes and we argue about the formula. I can just go, no, no, no. You five people care about five different things and this satisfies each one of you so that project's in. And now I'm only right. dealing with the bottom 10 projects instead of the, the whole 50. Right. Oh, that's great. That's great. So we've talked about a lot of different things. We're talking about some of the barriers and some of the ways that we can make this happen easily. But are there other barriers that prevent portfolio management from being successful or turning into that nightmare that we should talk about? Yeah, I think it's still data entry and in, in having a process. If you look at like an implementation, uh, we'll take CAPPM for that matter, or Clarity, as, as most people know, or even Niku back in the day. When they first came out with portfolio management, you actually still had to build out the full project underneath it in order to do it. So mm -hmm. they demo portfolio management and it looks gorgeous. It's great. And the functionality is great. But I still had to have an idea or a project for every single thing that I still had to have cost plans, project schedules, resource loaded schedules, that kind of stuff. And to me, that's just too much. And that's where the dream becomes a nightmare because the executives were sold how easy it was to, to deal with the data, but all the people underneath don't understand how to do the data. It's not normalized. And then, of course, if you've got bad data coming in, those formulas are just worthless. The system itself is just worthless if we don't focus on getting good data in first and building that foundation. The number one thing I say is we're going to focus on one thing and one thing only per role. And then once we have that down, we'll go to the next thing. So, for instance, resource managers, just a percentage cross, even if it's just peanut buttered, I don't care right? But it's that focus. Now, once we have that down and I've got that data, then we're going to do the improvement process where it's five to 10 minutes a week where you're updating the numbers in your staff meetings, right? Mm -hmm. Then if we want to you know, bring actuals in and start doing a comparison of how well we were estimating getting actuals, that's further down the road. But we're going to just start with something super simple. And once that becomes habit and once it becomes standard, then we move to the next thing, right? So again, if you look at it from a project management perspective, all I need is really kind of estimate of length, estimate of the resources that you need or roles that you need. If we're going to focus on fully, you know, resource developed project schedules, that's down the road and we can learn how to bring that data in. But right now we just need estimates. We just need to know what we think. But you watch companies do it, right? They're doing it by spreadsheet. I see charter forms where estimate the number of hours per department. Like I've seen that, but that data doesn't right. go anywhere. Yeah. 
So you said it's 500 hours of IT. I've got 300 IT employees. How do I equate that to whether or not I can do the job? I right. really need to know that I need a DBA and a tester and a developer and those types of things. Right, right. Um, so if, you're, if you find yourself doing this by spreadsheet, or if you find yourself doing this with forms or even trying to estimate resource utilization in your charter or your idea or something like that for consideration, then you need to be in a system doing it. You need to learn to do it the right way so that it rolls up and you actually get benefit from that. Because to me, if you're doing that in a word form or in Excel, you're truly not getting the benefit. You're getting an idea, but you're not getting the benefit. So I can take that same amount of work and mm -hmm. give you the full benefit. Well, now that's a really good point. So what I'm often telling my students and clients is first get a list of projects and figure out what the outcomes are you want to achieve, right? With your portfolio management solution, whatever it's going to look like. And frankly, I've gone into organizations and said, if you sign that contract and try and start with the tool before I've done any of my work with you, I don't want in, right? Because Absolutely. a lot of people will say, first, go buy a tool. And no, first, figure out what the heck you're trying to do. Figure out what business problem you're solving. Figure out what questions you want to answer and how you want to operate then the tool solution becomes obvious, right? And so I do think there's an opportunity to define what you want in a spreadsheet, right? Define your requirements. Sure. Here's how we'd want it to work, right? Here's the way I would say it is list, it'll crawl, walk, run, right? So when you're crawling, when you're barely just getting the list, get a list in a spreadsheet or on a whiteboard or wherever, and then define what you want. Then use that as a way, use it for a week or two, use it for a couple of weeks, a few weeks, a month or two, figure out what it is you're trying to do, I figure out what answers you need to what questions, then that becomes your requirements for the tool that's going to solve that problem. That's kind of that, that crawl, walk, run, right? But you want to, but you don't want to spend years in the spreadsheets, right? Because then you're going to get buried in spreadsheets without actually being able to quickly answer the questions that you need to answer. So I agree. Point, on that point though, this is what I hear back the most. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I want and the tool can help us define that. And so mm -hmm. we're putting the cart before the horse. And, and I'm like, well, if you don't know what you want, then why are you even buying a tool? Like, so let's just do it. Yeah. The biggest thing is I love the agile fail forward. Let's right. go do it and fail and find out what we need. Right now, let's get a list of projects together. Can we, get, can we do that? No. All right. Well, that's the easy part, right? We'll, we'll, we'll figure that <laughs> Can't out. Can't do that. You don't need to invest in a right. tool. <laughs> right. And then this next step is, can you prioritize these? Well, I need to know this information. And through failing and trying to make the decision, right. you'll identify what you need. But the tool isn't going to tell you. And in my tagline in R squared is that these tools do not fail. The software does not fail us. We fail the software. It will do what it's intended to do if we put the data in that's intended to be in there. So if you bought a workfront, adaptive, a Microsoft Project Server, I don't care. The reason why to get off of those tools is because you've identified features and needs that that tool doesn't supply. Right. right? But it didn't fail you. If you consider that implementation an ultimate failure, you've got to look inside the company first before you replace or before you go down that path again. Right. And you need to answer questions like, what business problems are we trying to solve with this? And maybe you just outgrew the tool because you failed forward and you figured out what it is that you needed to know. And so your requirements changed. So it's not necessarily that the tool yeah. failed you. It's that you're needing to evolve to meet the shifting business needs. Right, which is so that comment's really for, for people who, who said they failed, but I have tons of clients that started with like adaptive or workfront, and those are great tools. I'm not saying any one tool is better than the other. When it came out as at task, it was so easy to use. Now, mm -hmm. it lacked a lot of the features that CAPPM or Plan View or, or that middle tier or larger tier tools mm -hmm. do, 
but that's great. But then they outgrew it in two to three years. And now it's time to, to graduate to a, a larger tool to start solving those new problems that have come. Because there's always going to be something to solve. There's right. never anything that's perfect. So we have to constantly evolve. It's not like, that's the other thing. When I buy a tool, it doesn't mean we're done. When I buy the tool, right. it doesn't mean our lives are going to, to new problems are going to emerge. Mm-hmm. They should just be better problems to solve. You know, that's a really, really important point I want to reiterate for folks listening because I think that's one of the biggest, I would say, barriers, frankly, to people declaring or being able to declare success when they've implemented a tool or a process or building and running their PMOs. And that is that they think, well, once we've done this, we're finished. And success has been achieved and that's it. We're done. It's static. And whether it's implementing a process or putting services in place or implementing a tool. And you said the exact language that I've been saying to my students for a really long time. And that is, it's a continuous evolution. It's not about continuous improvement. It's an evolution. And the difference is, and the way I think about it, and I saw this so much at the PMI PMO symposium last fall, Everybody was talking about continuous improvement. And to me, continuous improvement means incremental change on the same foundation, right? Yep. And it's just continuing to build upon the thing that already exists. But what I think is going on and what we're facing right now and what we've been facing this year with the pandemic and what I think we're facing for the future of PMOs as a whole is a need to evolve with more desire for organizational agility, for more big A agile implementations, for organizations needing to be even faster and leaner and adapt themselves to thrive, I think that the PMO needs to be prepared to do the same thing. And so that means we're going to be in a constant state of evolution, not just incremental improvements. And so I really like that you said it that way because I think people get to this, they think that there's an end and that, well, once we accomplish this, we will declare success and we're done. And I just don't think that that's the way that a PMO or a portfolio management organization is going to is be successful. You'll be momentarily successful, but if you don't continue to evolve to meet the shifting business needs and continue to make changes and shift and grow and evolve, then I think you're going to be looking at survival versus thriving. So thank you so much for pointing that out, Rick. It's such a big deal. There was a, a line that I used to use. In fact, um, Mark Langley, the raised former yep. CEO of PMI, he came up to me um, in Philadelphia and said, I, I'll never forget when you did this. It was five or six years ago, but it was a line I use all the time is that everybody loves change unless it's happening to them. And, and project exactly. managers love to institute change, but don't change my stuff. Yeah, I think this exactly. is at the point they were rolling out a new structure for chapters and there was a volunteer that was leading it. And these people were just beating him up over these changes. And so I got on the mic and said that. I said, well, I guess everybody loves change unless it's happening to them. And it just kind of quelled the crowd. That's the truth of it is we have these policies and procedures. You know, Agile came out and it threw everybody into a tizzy. And instead of just taking a step back, looking at what Agile really means, finding out the principles you love and incorporating that into your practice, evolve with it, grow with it, learn from it, right. hear new ideas. But I feel like project managers just hold so tightly onto, and, and I'll give you a perfect example and this dovetails into our PMO stuff. I challenge the fact that a project manager needs to own a project start to finish. And I thought about that when I ran my PMO, because as I started to look at it, I had you know, one project manager who was phenomenal at, at generating the ideas and, and really building a good schedule. She was so good at it. And so mm-hmm. she always had our largest strategic projects, but I hated to lose her for the entire year on one project. Yeah. I had another project manager who was trying to learn, like a PM1. So I paired my PM1 with my PM3, 
The PM1 mm -hmm. did all the documentation so that the PM3 could just go meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting, right? Didn't have to do meeting notes, didn't have to yeah. actually type the things into the schedule. And then my PM1 is learning from my PM3 as they go. Yeah. Well, I took that theory and started to dive it further. I had somebody who was really good at, at talking people out of projects. We called her the project killer. She was great. But basically, <laughs> she was just like, are you sure you really want to do this? Right? And she talked to them in, in these yeah. mid-tier projects we probably shouldn't do. She'd, yeah. she'd get them closed. And yeah. I had another person who was really good just in the marketing stuff. And so I started to look at their skill sets and what they were good at mm -hmm. and putting them on more projects just for that skill set. And then an unintended consequence is I had great carryover crossover. So my PM3 would be able to come into a meeting and go, wait a minute, when did we make that decision to take us so far off track? And when you're mm -hmm. a part of the project team, you don't always know, right? right. right? You, right. Uh, how did we get here? And so mm -hmm. by having somebody who was disconnected but connected in the beginning, they kept them on the straight, narrow, solve scope creep. There's tons of benefits, but it all comes back to that theory of do I have to own it start to finish? I question that. That's really interesting. And I really think it's important to leverage people for their strengths. And that's exactly the model you set up. And when I was building around PMOs, I did similar things where I know this person was really good at this kind of work and that's the work that they did. And I think that that helps you create, well, first of all, people love to be in their area of brilliance, right? Absolutely. And so job satisfaction just goes through the roof because people are doing the parts they love and not doing the parts that they don't love. And if you build a very diverse team when skill sets and strengths and ideas and perspectives, you can do that. So I think that's brilliant. That's a really important tip. I'm glad we snuck that one in here <laughs> uh, in this portfolio management discussion. So speaking of tips, given some really great ideas around expediting implementing portfolio management. Do you have any other tips that you want to share with respect to ways that you can do this quickly? Yeah, I, I still, so obviously the data has to be solid. So finding a way to, to reward that. I'll give you two of my other favorite portfolio management tips. And it really comes around gate processing. One is what I call the 10% rule. Mm -hmm. So if, you, if you're creating a gate process, especially to, to satisfy portfolio management, a lot of times these gates, my question becomes, did we make a decision? Did we kill a project? Did we push a project forward? Whatever. If not, then gate reviews just aren't working. I have a 10% rule. So if you bring a budget uh, to us and we approve it, so it's a million dollar project, we're going to earmark 100000 for you to go plan the project to really figure it out. Go ahead and get to the point of contract signature. Give me a full project schedule, whatever. And then if you're plus or minus 10% uh, uh, of that million dollars, you're automatically approved and go. If you're outside of that 10%, that's when you have to come back to a gate. So now I'm really just dealing with the 10 to 15% outliers versus creating process to create process. It's one of my favorite tips to implement. The second is to truly have a murder board. I always loved that term when I went through PMP. But what I witnessed, I've been with 10 or 15 organizations that I've seen just explosive growth, right? Asherian being one of those. And I've seen organizations that have the ability to have explosive growth, but don't. So large bureaucracies, I was working with a Fortune 5. It literally took 88 hours for a project manager to prepare for a gate. Wow. Right? Every single gate. When I extrapolated that cost, it was costing $4 million a year to do their gate process. So my question to the executives were, can we find $8 million of benefit? Because if not, we need to overhaul this thing. And they right. refused to do it. They refused to let go of that. And they didn't go with any of the suggestions because they were afraid to let go of that process and change and evolve. But the people that I've seen have explosive growth make it very, very difficult to get a project approved on purpose. You basically have to satisfy incredible criteria. And if you think about it, 
right now I can go into any organization, look at all the project lists and get rid of half of them because they're underperforming or they don't really provide value. It's somebody's right. project like you were talking about. It doesn't even need to exist. So by putting in something that's a murder board to get something started and then have some easier criteria on the back end, like a 10% rule, those two mm -hmm. tips right there working together can really create explosive growth in an organization. So exception management, which I think is great, instead of trying to run everything through the same process, and then being able to kill the projects that shouldn't be happening in the first place or make it a harder barrier of entry. So only those that are going to help you achieve the return on investment you really need are the ones that are actually getting the energy and focus and resources. And so to say it really simply, the best portfolio management in the world that focuses on not doing projects, not what projects can they do. It's that simple. Yeah. Your greatest yes. portfolio management is making sure we're not letting subpar ideas, thoughts, underdeveloped ideas come in versus tr trying to maximize our resources. That's it. You'll maximize your resources naturally by fixing your project criteria coming in. I love that. I love that. That is so uh, on point with, I think, the whole idea that I've been trying to instill in all of uh, impact drivers listening, which is really flipping all the rules you've been following on their head and looking at it a completely different way. Exception management to building and running your PMO, right? Instead right. of trying to push everything through a process, let's rethink the whole question we're asking in the first place. And speaking of questions that PMO leaders ask, I often hear when I throw out ideas that are like this, which are flipping everything you think about on their head and looking at a different perspective as the way to solve the problems that PMO leaders and portfolio managers face, they have a tendency to get this little guy that goes up on their shoulder that I call the yeah, but monster. Sure. And it's the yeah, but that doesn't work here or yeah, but I don't know that we really need this in the first place. So my question to you, Rick, for all of those that feel that yeah, but monster creeping up onto their shoulder, why is portfolio management even necessary in the first place? Why should they feel compelled to do this? Well, first of all, it's the only way to know what's really going on in the organization, right? So mm -hmm. if you're upset with any kind of performance, you said something and it gets me up. You want to fire me up? Tell me that's the way it's always been done here because it, oh, here's, here's my no. response, right? <laughs> my response, oh, that's the way it was done the day you were trained. Yeah. You don't know what happened here before you got here. And if I decide to make this change and I hire somebody tomorrow to them, that's the way it's always been done here. So don't tell me. No, it's mm -hmm. only the way it's trained. And that's also a fear response. One of the biggest breakthroughs to me, though, in my world as a project manager is the, the understanding and development of DISC. Like really like understanding DISC profiles, understanding why. And when you get into that, 69% of the population are high S. High S are people with really good hearts. They put other people before them, but they're slow to change. And mm. it's not that they won't change. They have to understand the why. Now, me coming from a high I personality, I love change. I love ideas. In fact, I get bored if, if things aren't happening quicker, right? But I was mistaking my, them not coming along with the idea with me not, they just didn't believe in it. And all mm -hmm. it meant is I really didn't get into the why and what the benefits are. So it, it made me change my language. Mm -hmm. So if I figure that really two thirds of my project team's not going to want to move in this direction, I have to make sure that I'm speaking in a compelling way to get them to move there. And I do that by identifying pain. When the yeah, but monster comes up, I'll go, so how's it working for you right now? Like, why am I even here? What? Right. what and, and I just walk them right back into a coaching conversation of why did you hire me? Give me the reasons why. You heard me say this, you know, I'm going to come in and do this, right? My, my stuff is out there. Right. Now that I'm here and saying it, walk in the walk, why is it different for you? 
right? right? And we get them to identify that they're just uncomfortable with the change or they're not sure if it's going to work. And really my perfect client is I can get them to start going, well, I don't know if it's going to work because of this, or I don't know what, if it's going to work because of this. And I'll go, great. Then let's just take one thing and let's just try it. And if it doesn't work, we'll change. But I don't want to not try. And so the yeah, but monsters, what I ask you to do is dive in to understand really why that it won't work here. I firmly disbelieve that. That is, but why they say that is because they did try something and they got shut down and they got shut down without a reason. So therefore they just, well, you don't know my executives. They won't go for that. No, they didn't go with the way you pitched it. Right. Supply enough of information to compel them to move, but Mm. they'll change if there's pain. People only change if they hurt enough that they want to or that they care enough that they need to. That's it, right? Right. And so mainly change in organization is driven by hurt. Mm -hmm. And so we need to to grab it. And the other point comes back to our coaching conversations, which is my job is not to convince you. My job is to inspire you with new thought. Mm -hmm. So if you're feeling convincing is going on, we're not on the path that we need to be at the moment. I need to inspire you to go, yeah, that is something I need to look at. And let me look through my day and look through my way and, and figure this out. But if I'm convincing you and I feel that as a consultant, I'm not in the right space. Oh, for sure. And that's, gosh, you've touched on so many great things there that I think is really important for our impact driver community to hear. And I'm always saying to them, look, if you're selling the PMO or your services, you are doing it wrong because you're not focused on the need, right? The challenge, the opportunity, the pain point that's been identified, the reason they hired you in the first place, right? And so what often happens with PMO leaders is they'll get hired for the job because somebody realized that they needed change, right? Or they had a pain that they wanted solved. And that PMO leader comes in and instead of asking all of the, what are your pain points? What keeps you up at night? And all those questions they should be asking, they start saying, okay, I've gathered enough information. I know the medicine you need to take. Therefore, these are the things we're going to do. And then they spend all of their time selling or convincing business leaders that their solution is the right solution. And as my friend Mark Prairie says, if it's not your PMO, and if you think it's your PMO, you're doing it wrong, right? So the PMO needs to be solving the business pain points that have been identified. And that's the why. And if you're not clear on what those pain points are, then you keep digging and digging until you get the why am I here? How can I serve is answered by understanding what's keeping them up at night and what's driving them to want to create change. Because if you stay focused on that, you don't get change resistance because you're just giving them the solution to the pain that they've identified. You're helping them achieve the outcome which is moving away from that pain to a better state. I think that's so important that you're pushing on that specifically because whether you are a consultant like you or inside an organization as a PMO leader, the questions are the same. Why am I here? What pain do we need to change? Because until it's painful enough for them to want to cause change, then you're just wasting your time and having the wrong conversation. So stop worrying about the things you know they need, right? PMO leaders, It's not about the problems you know they need. The medicine you need them to take comes later after you have built credibility and they trust you and you've proven that you can solve the pains they have right now. So thank you so much for spending time on that, Rick. That's huge. Of course. I think resistance is just a lack of understanding is the the way I've always seen that. So I need to Amen. I I remember a quick story, the PMO, they felt like it was taking too long for us to set our delivery dates. And so they mm-hmm. came up with this, all right, we're, we're going to do, you got to have a, a production date within 60 days of giving the project. And my project managers lost their mind because mm-hmm. the process took forever. And I said, we're not going to push back. We're going to educate. 
So I basically walked them through the process and I used the PMBOK and I said, okay, here's how you develop your rough order magnitude. Then this is how we get to a budgetary estimate. And this is how we move to definitive. And these are all the steps that we're moving and we're not telling you till to definitive. So I'm okay with the 60 days, but I'm going to mark off how far I got in the list within the 60 days. And mm-hmm. you're going to give me the PMI accepted standards plus or minus 50 to hundred percent or plus or minus 10 to 25 or five to 10. All right. So as long as you're okay with the variability of estimate, I'm fine with giving you that date. And then it came to, well, why is it taking that long? And so when we walked them through the process, it turned out legal was kind of the biggest issue for us. And so then they said, okay, 60 days after legal approves, which actually gave me more time to set a production date than I had before. But the point was, is it wasn't resistance. They just didn't understand. So they put a policy in place. My job was to accept the policy, but educate. Instead mm-hmm. of going, that's stupid. It's never going to work. Might be right. All that stuff. Right. It's just, we do the project manager thing, which is take the data, go back to our plans, evaluate, resolve the impact. Nothing in there says we make the decision as a PMO or as a project manager. Our job exactly. is to go back, understand the impact, tell them what the impact is, get a decision. Exactly. And for those of you that still aren't convinced that people are not resistant to change, definitely go check out episode 42 of the PMO strategy podcast where I break down exactly why people are absolutely not resistant to change. They are resistant to change being done to them. And if you don't believe me, if you know anybody that's ever been married, then that's all about change, right? So people do that willingly to themselves every day. So it ain't about change resistance. It's about people not wanting change done to them, just like you were saying earlier to me today. So, okay. One other question for you before we wrap up here. The way that we talk about portfolio management and the PMO, I'm wondering where project management fits into all of this and how does portfolio management help or hurt the progress of the actual projects and support the project managers doing their project work? First of all, that comes back to that identification of the process. So I look at everything in numbers, right? So if I say, we're going to do a gate review, I'm going to calculate the cost of the gate review Mm-hmm. versus the benefit of, and if I can't get 2x of cost, then that process shouldn't exist. Right. It's a really simple format and way. I think though, the biggest help a portfolio manager can do is A, give visibility to the project management, but B, I've always felt that when we start with a list of all the projects, give me a list of all the projects you want to do, and then it goes to a magic formula. There's great study out there, Dr. James Norrie did. There's a, a book out there called Breaking Through the Project Fog. And really, cool. we as a portfolio manager, instead of just figuring out what projects we, we should be doing, should be right-hand people of the executives that are taking the strategic initiatives and breaking those down into projects. That's why Agile is taking off, Mm -hmm. right? Is is we continue to develop a cadence to where we understand a project's ready to go as well as it fits into our strategy. And if it doesn't fit into our strategy, why are we doing it? Back to kind of the murder board piece. So to me, the portfolio managers is helping the project manager understand how projects connect to strategy. Project manager knows where they fit and now has that dialogue with the portfolio manager. So we become a support organization. So you stay focused on your lane. What I see in portfolio management is we get up all in the business of the project manager about data and metrics and some of the stuff that doesn't matter, like the 85 metrics we talked about. And so then they become this nasty barrier or it becomes a contentious relationship because the portfolio manager is going, I got to have this or the executives are going to be mad. And the project manager is like, I don't see the benefit of doing this. So, you know, and, and there's that rub that we got right. to clear it out. If we understand that portfolio managers about strategy and what we're not going to do versus what we're going to do, I think that frees up the project manager's clutter to where they can focus on the really good projects and be able to focus. The other thing I look at is like anything where there's duplicate entries got to go. 
I mean, just a full analysis. If we're typing in something in one system, the other, my job is to figure out how to connect those. Right. Not going to do duplicate entry. There's going to be a single source of record. We're going to type it in. Everywhere else that needs to get it can come to that system for it, right? Whether it's a feed or they come to the system. Those are kind of the keys that I I see in really being able to benefit as a portfolio manager because the portfolio manager needs to be really concerned about the quality of the data, not just the data. Right. You're using that as a basis of really big decisions. Exactly. And that's part of the challenge. I all the time talk to PMO leaders and I ask them, so how much of the data that you are using to drive decisions is actually in the system that you're using versus sitting on someone's desktop somewhere where the real project management is happening? So that's a pain point that I know PMO leaders and portfolio managers have all the time. So, well, this has been fantastic. And for those of you that have not registered for the PMO Impact Summit yet, you definitely want to do so so that you can catch Rick's presentation on the art of ethical influence. We have a fantastic conversation that's a part of the PMO Impact Summit. So make sure you go to PMOImpactSummit.com and register for that so that you can hear Rick share some really great strategies for influencing specifically for our PMO and project management community. So Rick, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate your time and sharing all of your great ideas. I hope this has really helped our Impact Driver community think of ways that they can you know, start small and be realistic, but really make a huge impact with portfolio management by being thoughtful about the ways we go about tackling the portfolio management challenges so we can ultimately live that dream of portfolio management and help become that strategy navigator that we know our business leaders need. And don't forget, this episode is sponsored by Keydin. Place the right bets, Turn quickly and deliver faster with this innovative approach to top-down portfolio and capacity planning. Looking at adopting a more agile method due to the ongoing crisis? Concepts like iterative development, continuous improvement, and prioritizing a dynamic backlog, when applied to portfolio management, can deliver a host of compelling benefits that Keydin brings to life. Learn more at pmoimpactsummit.com forward slash keydin. That's PMOImpactSummit.com forward slash keyed in. All right, Impact Drivers, thank you so much for being here with us today. Rick, thank you again for being here. And we look forward to sharing all of your brilliance in the PMO Impact Summit. All right, bye-bye for now. 